Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ben, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for a breakdown of The Sandman Issue 7, Sound and Fury. I'm joined by my two adjective co-hosts, Ashley. Hail and well met. And Sean. Out, out, brief candles. What's up, everybody? (laughs) On each episode, we'll be deconstructing the issue in six separate sections. First will be the rundown, where we will let you know who created the issue. And then the catch-up, to be sure you know where we are in the story. Next, we'll do the breakdown which gives you a synopsis of that week's issue. And then we follow up with the deep dive, where we really get into everything that happened. In our last two sections, we'll discuss our favorite panel and our non-Morpheus character. So there you have it. Six sections to get through, so let's get going. Sean, over to you for the rundown. All right. I think this is my first week doing this. I think this is my first rundown. Very excited. All right. You got your you got your writer. You got your Neil Gaiman, right? Number one, top billing. You got your Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones the third on art. Mike doing pencils. Malcolm doing inks. Uh, what is you this got Daniel Vos- You're adding. <laughs> <laughs> that isn't Actually, too much. Do I, not interrupt the rundown. It is most sacred. I was too excited. I was too excited. <laughs> Not I feel sure. like I'm supposed to be eating a gyro while you're saying this. <laughs> You've got Daniel Raja, colorist. Uh, we've got the inimitable Todd Klein on letters. Art Young is associate editor. And Karen Berger bringing it all together as editor. All right. Now, over to you, Ashley, for the catch-up. You can pick your accent of choice. <laughs> oh, Man, I was about to mock you, but now I gotta pick hey, one. Do the catch up. Hey, Sean, thanks, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we've just mercifully met. Blah blah blah. Anyway, we've just mercifully survived the world's longest lunch date with John D. And after having brutally tortured and murdered five patrons and a writer, not a waitress, the reader sits in the silent tension that is finally broken by a fed-up dream. So that's where we're left off. Ben, on to you for the breakdown. All right. So this is the finale of the first main story in The Sandman. It ends preludes in nocturnes. And what we end up getting is a really it's a it's a it's a battle between The Sandman, Morpheus, and Dr. Destiny, John D. Uh, but it is not your typical battle that you might see in a standard comic book. There are no punches thrown. There are no guns, shots, and all swords from what we can see remained sheathed. Instead, a lot like when Dream went to hell, we get a battle of wits. And we will see who comes out in the end as Morpheus and Dream go into the dreaming and spend their time 
going back and forth with each other, essentially trying to trick the other is the is the way that I saw it into losing. And so Dream starts off first by giving D nightmares and causing him to feel shame. And then eventually D realizes what's going on and manages to to take back over to to be back in control and and search out Dream as Dream runs through the dreaming and hides. And then D starts to break down the dreaming. And that is what really causes Morpheus to finally come in and say, you cannot do this anymore. Uh, We get flashes of other inhabitants of the dreaming. We get flashes of destiny. And it's one of my all-time favorite pieces when he says he is hesitant to turn to the next page in the book. We also see D is deconstructing and is now a, a skull is all that remains of him in the dreaming. And eventually, D crushes the dream ruby and in doing so thinks that he has beat dream but in fact he has released all that power back to morpheus morpheus is able to right some of the wrongs that john d has done and sends him back into arkham asylum as silence washes like a river over arkham no sounds of screaming or sobbing No noises of pain or madness, just peace. The only noise is the gentle, even cadence of people asleep, in, out, in, out. Listen, you can hear it. I love that part. It's a nice uh, narration. And I think we're going to go take a little nap because that sounds nice and uh, we'll be right back. Do you fondly remember blowing the dust out of a golden Nintendo cartridge to get it to work? Get the dust out of it. All right, here we go. Yes, let's get it. Now the screen's gray. Aw, man. Or those long nights when you were up late fighting Ganon and you'd hear your mom coming downstairs. Hello? That's mom. Uh, pretend you're asleep. Wait, pause it. Pause it. Turn off the TV. Do do you think she's gone? make a sound. Hmm. I thought I heard two boys down here. Oh, well. Well, Ben and Pat are here to transport you back to those exhilarating moments as the Hyrule Podcasters! Join the two brothers each week as they play through Zelda games in Nintendo's legendary series. Episodes are filled with color commentary, lightly researched facts, personal anecdotes, and more. Hyrule Podcasters is available through Anchor on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Hyrule Podcasters on Facebook and Instagram at Hyrule Podcasters and on Twitter at Hyrule Podcasters. All right, so we're back here. We're in the deep dive. Uh, Sean and Ashley were just really excited uh, to, to get into the meat and potatoes of all this. So let's set up what we have going on here. And I think it plays really nicely to say, repent. The end is near. <laughs> Ashley, Thank where are you going you. with this? I, I really uh, I really enjoyed that intro. I appreciate it. This is what it, my whole life has been building up to. Uh, so, yes. So, in wanting to prep for this episode, initially I thought I wouldn't have a lot to pull from for this issue just because it feels like a pretty... I don't want to say cut and dry. That feels derivative. But it generally... There are certain things that happen. We can follow them in succession. There's a beginning, middle, and an end. And there's not a lot in between, but the longer I sat with the issue, uh, the more I was I was starting to, to pull from. And the first thing that I wanted to talk about, um, you really find on that, I think, 
it would be like the second page of this issue when um, you're having all these horrific events described to you. Um, but specifically the panel where it says bereft of the rapture, they weep for their abandonment by a suddenly distant God. And I wanted to talk about that because I think real, a, a ca the casual reader will go, oh yeah, crazy fundamentalist Christians, totally normal. We see street preachers all the time, but you might not necessarily know what they're referring to in that section and how it kind of plays out throughout the rest of the issue. And so I, I thought that maybe some background in the theology that's being demonstrated here might be a little helpful and just enrich the reading experience. So whether you grew up reading and or watching the Left Behind series or not, you may have been exposed to some sort of concepts of the rapture. Have you get, Were you guys ever exposed to the idea of the rapture? Or were you spared that trauma? I remember it from those, from those novels that yeah. you know were big when we were all probably teenagers. That's what mm -hmm. I remember for the most part. Is that the Kirk Cameron? <laughs> yeah. Is he in that? <laughs> yeah, so, okay. so the Left Behind novels were written by... Um, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins. It was a big series. They kept coming out with all these books. They were they had the basically the black cover with the, oh, I the colorful stripe yeah. down the center with really mm -hmm. epic titles. My mm -hmm. mom had all of them, um, and like she was just curious. It wasn't even like she was diehard. She wasn't even. She's not. She never was particularly fundamentalist. It was just like a oh this is neat. I liked Stephen King. I bet I'll like this. Um, and so then even as kids, I like I got a few of the teen ones. Um, left behind for teens and um they were frankly very boring and poorly written so i never finished them um but it was this big epic sort of journey of these these people that were quote-unquote left behind after the rapture the rapture being this belief that uh christians will be basically transported or zipped up into heaven at the second coming of christ and that is a very specific theological take that not everybody mm. unpacks because it's just you know through popular media through popular christian media uh is sort of given to them and people run with it and go yeah that's that's how it works but i think it is really critical to sort of unpack our eschatology um when we are dealing with concepts like the apocalypse. And I'm going to unpack these terms specifically so you kind of can follow me. Because there are a lot of, uh, there have been a lot of eschatological theories to run through the course of Christian history. And we see one such theory expressed here with these fundamentalist street preachers. So eschatology, I've mentioned it before, but just again, briefly, it's the theological study of end things or the end of time. Um, so anytime you're in a religion where you're talking about the end times, you're trying to theorize about how this will happen or what will bring it about, you're doing eschatology. Uh, the apocalypse, specifically in Christian theology, focuses, it could be any one of three things when you're saying apocalypse. You could be talking about the end of the world. You could be talking about a type of literature focused on the unveiling of divine mysteries, or you could be talking about a specific book written in apocalyptic form, such as mm. the book of Revelation, which is the only apocalyptic book in uh, the Bible. And there are lots of different interpretations on the book of Revelation. A lot of people like to, because it's a fun book to read because it's nuts. It's a there fun are book so to read. many. It is nuts. Yes. I think it was the first one I read. Yeah. It was it really? So I, think, I think every yeah. teenager, I feel like, flips to that, <laughs> flips to Revelations, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
That's, that well, was my take. We all flipped Revelations. That's hilarious. Um, Horrors of cool Babylon, and serpents coming yeah. out of the sea. Like, oh, I mean, stuff. absolutely. It's it's a it's a huge mythic tale. There's a lot of stuff to unpack in it. It's just funny to me that that would be the one that you guys first read. Because <laughs> what more confusing book to flip to than Revelation? Um, but I mean, to I be also fair, liked new metal at the time, so fair you know, that, my, that's very fitting. My choices this explains were, you a know, lot. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> this explains a lot. This explains a lot. But um, through the course of history, there have been so many interpretations of Revelation because everyone wants to unpack it. They want to understand the quote-unquote mysteries of Revelation. As far as authorship is concerned, we really only know um, that it was written by a John, whether that's the disciple John or that's what who we refer to as John of Patmos. They are frequently linked together, um, John the Apostle and... Uh, John of Patmos, we just know he was on Patmos when he was writing it. He was exiled. Um, But specifically, there are some interpretations of Revelation that sort of seep into modern culture. Um, And I just want to go through four of them um, briefly so you can kind of have an idea as to why people think the way they do. So they're is premillennialism, which is this idea, it's a millennialist belief. And I don't mean millennial, like I'm a millennial via my age. I mean, it's this interpretation of Revelation 20, uh, where there's a reference to a thousand year period of peace. So when I say a millennial, I'm talking about that, that thousand year period and mm people's interpretation as to when that fits into history. So millennialist Uh, theories tend to be focused on timing and figuring out when things will land to signal the apocalypse ultimately. So pre-millennialism is the belief that Christ will return before the millennium or that thousand years of peace described in Revelation 20 verses four through six, I think is specific. Um, And then continues on into an internal state eternal state in which the new heavens and the new earth are that are mentioned in chapter 21 that that will come about so you have history you have this thousand years of peace where christ reigns and then you go on into heaven then you've got the post-millennialist belief which is that christ will return after that period of peace that thousand years and then within that thousand years it's really imagining that Christian ethics will prosper. So not so much that Christ is there, but that Christianity prospers, Christian ethics Mm. prosper, a majority of humanity will become Christian, and then, then, and only then will Christ come, and there will be the second coming and general resurrection, et cetera, et cetera, final judgment. Amillennialism is the belief that the reign of Christ is more symbolic and that it'll be manifested in the hearts of those who are faithful. So Mm. instead of there will be a reign of Christianity or the reign of Christianity will happen once Christ comes back. It's more like, eh, it'll, it's symbolic. We don't really, there are a lot of different numerological ways to interpret that thousand years. It's squishy, um, but still kind so of like good people ruling and doing good things could count. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. And cool. so, so it's, a lot of, a lot of mainline Christianity kind of falls in that amillennialist mm. sort of tradition. Um, and then you get into dispensationalism. I'm, I'm millennial. 
you'll get into dispensationalism, which is the belief that biblical and human history consists of dispensations or eras mm. that mm. break down and were divinely appointed, almost like trials of some mm. kind. Um, and so most American dispensationalists will follow what's called the Schofield, Schofield Sevenfold Scheme. It's a mouthful. Schofield mm. Sevenfold Scheme. Um, and so these seven folds of these dispensations, these seven dispensations are the innocency, so before the fall, so before uh, the garden was defiled by sin, uh, mm. conscience, so the fall to the flood, human government, promise, so Abraham to Moses roughly, uh, mm. the law, so Moses to Christ, so that's when we, when we get all those laws. Mm, um, all that good stuff. Exactly. Uh, grace, so what they call the church age, hilarious and a little ironic. Um, and then the kingdom, which is then that thousand years of peace. Mm. Um, and so, and there are diagrams of this. So, so dispensationalism can get a little intense. Um, I have some opinions about it that I'll try to be gentle with. Uh, but there are diagrams sort of like, showing you where all of these eras or dispensations lay out. And then frequently what people will try to do is try to predict when that era of the kingdom will land. So that's when you get a lot of people sort of looking towards modern history or current events to try to pick out, oh, that's a sign of the apocalypse. So we've brought up uh, the Left Behind series one of the big bads in the Left Behind series is the character Spoilers. Nikolai Carp Carpathia, who is the supreme potentate of the global community, uh, which is this idea of this global community and global religion that all like ultimately follows him into everything. He's really just like a function of Satan, but he's they're all following him. Um, and so when people read that, they started to assume that the EU was a reflection of this global community and assuming it was a sign of the apocalypse and also the sign of Satan coming back to rule. It was a whole thing. Big thing. I remember it was, it was, I think it was like in seventh grade when this was coming out the most and people okay. were trying to, to guess at this. So it can get Amazing. really bizarre very quickly. Now that's like at the extreme end, there are some historical and valid sort of ways you could, you could apply this and interpret this that don't go that route, but mm -hmm. that's what we see most frequently. And that's what we see depicted here in the comic is this premillennialist dispensationalist sort of focus on scripture and on revelation specifically, because they're talking about that this rapture has happened. They believe this rapture has happened and they've been left behind to then have to deal with torture, torment and a world without God ultimately. And so what Ashley is referencing for, for those of you at home um, to just right on page two. So page one starts the comic page two is the next page after that. And it's on the left-hand side, and you see the repent the end is near sign in bereft of the rapture, they weep for their abandonment by a suddenly distant God. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of the the craziest of the crazy tend to – I said I was going to be gentle with my opinions, and then I just decided, now screw that. Um, 
um, tend to run this this risk of going into, oh, I can predict the future. I mm. can predict when Christ will return. I can predict who Satan is, or I can predict who the second Adam is, which is a whole sort of trying to take prophecies that were not written for us, were not meant for us, um, and running with them in a way that does not apply. Um, and that's where I think you get into preterism, which is more the idea that you could, I mean, you could be a partial preterist or a full preterist in the sense that biblical prophecies, have they occurred already? You know, do we have historical takes for them? A partial preterist would probably say that Babylon the Great, which is referenced in uh, Revelation, is really a demo- was really demonstrated in the Roman Empire and the um, the beast is actually a reference to Emperor Nero because, again, he persecuted a lot of Jews. So there is a lot of like, okay, how how could we apply a historist view to this? Um, what has happened throughout history and especially at that time that might have been illustrated in those prophecies? And then also then you know, how does that play out in a faith now that is still looking forward? And that's where you get into a lot of current language with regard to uh, eschatology that refers to the already not yet. You'll hear that a lot in especially uh, contemporary theology where there's a coming of Christ in the sense that Christ's mission has been fulfilled in the church, but also mm. there's an awaiting of, of his return, etc. What I really, cause I'm sure I'll, I'll get questions maybe potentially in our discord. What, most Christians that I tend to be in fellowship with really focus on is the fact that we're not meant to know. Um, There are a lot of other references in scripture specifically that focus on, Hey, now brothers and sisters about the dates and times we do not need to know. We don't need to write about those to you. Those kind of comments, you know, they'll come, it'll come in as a thief in the night. Um, it is not for you to know the times and dates the father is set by his own authority. So a lot of us will t- just generally go, oh, we don't know. And it's not our job. It's above our pay grade. That makes me feel more comfortable. <laughs> that approach, should. I think. You know, one of the most interesting things I think of having doing this podcast with you now for a few months, Ashley, is like. I was really into church for like 24 years and I don't know 98% of the things that you ever talk about. (laughs) And it's just like, it's amazing how you can like be active in church. And then there's this whole other piece of every religion, right? I mean, that's the whole point. I mean, every religion has like, there's an entire other thing going on, right? The scholarly Mm -hmm. academic, you know, look into it all. And it's just, it's always fascinating. It's always so fascinating. I'm glad it's fascinating because it's not always fascinating to everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And I can understand where, where, especially if you if you are no longer a part of any sort of faith community, as soon as you start to hear language like what I've just used, it'd be like, no, I've been there. I've done that. That's exhausting. Mm. Everyone that gets into that is nuts. And I've also experienced those people for sure. Um, but I think it's an issue of formation as well because – a lot of people who who lead churches in some capacity have finite resources a lot of the time. So then trying mm-hmm. to do so any sort of like solid or good formation work as far as like educating their communities well uh, can be really tricky to, to manage. Mm. So Sean, Ashley gave us a nice deep dive into the good book, but you have here that you want to talk about some other good books written by Shakespeare. 
Yes. Was that a transition? Own, uh, that was a transition. Oh, <laughs> holy texts. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> let's <laughs> let's uh, let's start off. The t- Go ahead. I was going to say, as you jump into this, this is definitely one of the issues. A lot like when we initially started, I talked to you all about the Midsummer Dream issue that's later on that I just kind of skipped over. And then Sean was like, well, that's the one that won the Hugo. And I was like, shows you what I know. This is another <laughs> one of those where even like as a learned adult, I go through most of this comic and I'm just like, I'm sure there are so many illusions in this that I just have no idea what's going on. It just like Ashley was able out of one panel was able to give us seven minutes, you know, eloquently put like on the end is nigh, right? Like it's just, I just know you're going to be like, Oh Ben on, on this panel, there was this thing. And it was incredible that, that they did all this. And I was like, I didn't even know. I thought it was just some funny looking people talking about Caesar. I don't know what's going on. So let us know <laughs> what was going on. <laughs> yeah. So there is the, you know, there, there is the, the Julius Caesar, portion later on but i really want to focus on the title here sound and fury right and that's because it's a reference i imagine that uh our buddy neil was pretty pleased with himself to use right um the phrase itself uh which also inspired the title of uh william faulkner's novel the sound and fury um comes originally from shakespeare in act five scene five of macbeth ah i've seen in tragedy of macbeth Thank God. Have you? I have. Yeah. Did you did you see the uh, recent one with like Denzel Washington? Yes, it's so good. It was so good. I I've only watched part of it oh so far, God. but like I saw that that part where he runs into the witches, and that was such a cool way of doing yeah. that. Like that. Yes. I mean, you know, love for Sandman and all, but their <laughs> their fates knock Sandman's out of the water. It's not true. fair to compare. It's a different medium. It's it's Joel Cohen, right? Um, but but that was such an incredible scene. Uh-huh. Um, those of you who love the the Hecate, go and check out that on Apple Plus. I think. Um, but yeah, so so it came from Act Five, Scene Five of Macbeth um, in the play. Macbeth has used treachery and murder to become king of Scotland. Um, but at this point. All of his achievements are crumbling around him, right? His enemies have joined forces and raised an army to lay siege to his castle. His wife, uh, Lady... <laughs> I'm censoring that for Ashley. <laughs> Thank for you. Theater. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. uh, driven mad by guilt, has taken her own life. And upon finding out, Macbeth says... He's got a little soliloquy. He says, Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And it's really one of the most beautiful and terrifying soliloquies in all of Shakespeare. Um, You know, it's a man who's whole being is focused on his ambition and will to dominate, seeing now the ultimate futility of that in the face of death, right? Macbeth here considers the vastness of time, of eternity, and the tiny bit of illumination we have in this vast, unknowable darkness that's as brief and flickering as a candle, 
uh, yet we pretend to all these big, you know, meaningful dramas that make up our lives, right, that are really nothing in the face of, you know, all of those tomorrows to the last syllable of recorded time. Um, so uh, a wonderful reference and a wonderful speech. And, of course, then, you know, the themes of, of Macbeth's speech and the play as a whole really kind of dovetail nicely with John Dee's story in The Sandman. So here's Dee's ambition uh, to become, well, not just king of Scotland, right, but of the whole world at first. And eventually just to, like, burn it all down and dance in the ashes, Um you know, he follows what he believes to be his destiny, this special purpose given to him by his mother and reinforced in that prophecy he heard in the diner. And it's worth noting, you know, like I mentioned earlier, that the events of Macbeth are kicked off by uh, a prophecy from three witches that Macbeth runs into on the way home from a battle. And they prophesy that, you know, he will be king, right? Uh, and so like Macbeth, Dee murders his way to the top and seems to have the world in the palm of his hand. But also like Macbeth, his avarice and paranoia eventually lead to his downfall. You know, his obsession with destroying his enemy and his overconfidence lead him to crush dreams ruby, release all that power inside. And while Macbeth uh, rushes off into battle, believing you know, part of this prophecy is that no man born of woman can slay him. Uh, he eventually, the guy who eventually kills him was a cesarean birth. So that was kind of the workaround. Like he wasn't actually born of woman. Um, eventually, you woman know, like that. Woman wasn't needed to make that baby happen. There was no woman involved. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's a little bit of a cheat. It, it, it's sort of a Shakespeare sneak in a way. Oh, but, um, <laughs> We'll take it. Shakespeare we'll take catching it. strays today. <laughs> <laughs> so, and like Macbeth, D then sees how sort of small and petty his ambitions have been, have been right? How full of sound and fury as he sits in the palm of, of, of Dream's hand, you know. Um, or maybe he sees it a little earlier than that because there's that beautiful... Uh, striking splash page after he crushes the ruby um, where it's just the tiny figure of D uh, and, you know, considering his victory in this blank, white, endless space. And he says, you know, I thought somebody would say something. Mm -hmm. uh, such a great moment. I love so, how even at like you, what he thinks is the height of his powers, he just wants his mom to like recognize that he was a good boy. Like that's, yeah. what, it is. that's, that's, that's what it is in that moment. For sure. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the title works on the level of something that sounds uh, really cool. And it's an appropriate bit of dialogue uh, in the story um, when D is kind of like lost in dreams. But it also works in this larger and more thematic way that a little understanding of the of the uh, the context of this illusion, the Shakespeare's Macbeth, um, really illuminates. Yeah, I, I think that it is a uh, another example of something that I've said multiple times is that real people like came up with these ideas to write them and brought in their own influences into this, and it's an, it's important to remember that that they're. It's, you know, especially in something like a comic versus maybe like a novel where, you know, all you have are the words on the page and maybe you could get a little creative with how you arrange the words sometimes. But here, being a visual medium, you can just do so much and kind of how you position that can help people draw those illusions even more uh, sharply sometimes. Yeah, absolutely.
so speaking of drawing sharp illusions, um, death takes a holiday, Ashley. <laughs> yes. I see you italicize this in the notes, which if my recollection is correct, that means it's the title of something. It is. It is. Briefly, before I get into this reference that I'm really actually very excited about, um, just to, to sort of combine to our powers combined, uh, mine and Sean, with what he's said about Macbeth and then what I've mentioned about eschatology, because you brought up that um, that page where he's just kind of standing in blank white space and then he's talking about how it's not how he imagined it would be. Again, how like the futile attempts to try to predict when the apocalypse is going to happen, whether from a biblical perspective or if you're trying to wrest power from somebody. Um, and it, it also, back to something that I've, I've mentioned on the podcast before, that splash page of him just in blank white space really, uh, really demonstrates well that idea of Ukantic and Mayantic nothingness, mm. Ukantic being this nothingness that he thought he, he, he managed to bring about himself, only to realize it is a physical blank page that has the potential for something, making it Mayantic mm. nothingness. Mm. And we then <laughs> see that with Sandman holding him in the palm of his hand and him being able to to bring about life from that nothing he thought he had he'd brought about himself. Uh, so I just, I just love that it comes full circle, yeah. but yes, bringing up death takes a holiday. So really my two deep dives were specifically about <laughs> panels that of references that come up, uh, because then on, you're going to have to help me with page numbers I when he is, when they're still in the diner and he's describing when John D is describing what he wants to do. And you see the little picture of him literally dancing above a cemetery. Um, and he's singing death takes a holiday. Oh yes. That'd be page number four. Naturally. I had to, to look that up to see if it was a reference to something. Cause it also sounded very familiar and it is, it's based. It's a, it's a film that was, um, made in the thirties and it's based off of an Italian play called La Morte in Vacanza. Uh, it's from the 19, uh, from 1924 and it's by Alberto Casea. Um, and again, then was adapted for in English for Broadway in 1929. And then again, later made into a film. Uh, and the film is about the anthropomorphic uh, personification of death and he, he in this case, uh, is contemplating why everybody fears him and why he can't hold anything that bears life, why he can't experience everything that everyone's referring to, uh, and why he always has to be present for like people's worst moments. So he decides then to take on a human form, a mortal form, as a character named Prince Sirki, and then he spends three days among these very rich, very posh mortals in the 1930s, and I think Italy, um, and they do things like they, they do yacht races and he goes to the horse races and they do, they have a big soiree where he dances with beautiful women. And he's like trying to understand the concept of love. So there, there are three women that he sort of like casually woos while he's with these mortals and has these discussions about whether what, what love is. Cause he doesn't understand the concept of love um, and what kind of relationship he could possibly have with them. And then ultimately meets Grazia who you find out towards the end of the film 
has seen him as he is, as this personification of death this whole time. She hasn't seen him as a mortal man. She's seen him as this dark cloaked figure. Um, and she's the only one that's seen him as he truly is. And despite the protestations of her family and her fiance, uh, leaves with death, um, because that is the only way she feels like she could, uh, achieve happiness. And it's a really delightful film with some, some actors that were huge at the time. Uh, Friedrich March plays death. He was a huge celebrated actor in the 1930s and 40s. He's from Racine, Wisconsin. Shout out. And uh, I know. And he was in a lot of like mythic or fantasy sorts of films for that time. He played both Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in that era's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, You've got Evelyn Venable as Grazia. And she was most known for that role as Grazia. But she was also the model and voice for the Blue Fairy in the animated Pinocchio. Um, so if you compare the photo to the, to the image, they look oddly identical. Uh, you've got Henry Travers as Baron Cesra, who is the person who makes the deal with death to host him and not tell anybody who he is. Henry Travers is best known for his role as Clarence Oddbody in It's a Wonderful Life. So you'll definitely recognize him when you see him. And then you've got Kent Taylor as Corrado, who was only known for his beam film work. And he was in things like Brain of Blood, Brides of Blood, Blood of Ghastly Horror. So lots of titles. In, I'm detecting in, a theme. He was yeah, a vampire. There's a theme. He was a vampire. <laughs> Obviously. Yes, prob- probably. I solved it. Solved it. Who's, who's to say? I mean, we, we can't know. We can't know. Um, but I, I just, I love the fact that this reference is being made in this comic because this was also then later made into a musical. So this image of John D dancing above a cemetery singing death takes a holiday went based off of this film that is about an anthropomorphic personification trying to wrestle with their role in the world. (laughs) Um, And even the, the role of death in the film actually sort of reflects Morpheus's journey much better than like the death we receive in this, in this uh, comic scope. Mm. So when you watch the film and I really do strongly, it's only like an hour long. It's very short, but it's very cute. Very charming. Um, You will see like, Oh, this is just Morpheus doing his sulky thing the entire time wooing women and trying to figure out what he's supposed to do and how to be loved best. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and it, then comparing it with John D and seeing him again, trying to express what he thinks ultimate happiness would be like, but having absolutely no scope for what would satisfy him, I think pairs really well with this film. So if you want to have another enriched experience, watch the movie, then read this comic and you'll have a new appreciation. I'm sold. I want to check it out now. I know one of the things that I really enjoyed you know, looking at this comic is a lot of the panel work, I guess, is, is the only or maybe page work might be the better way to put it. So in particular, uh, when Dr. Destiny starts jumping into the dream world and starts to move through that. So for those of you with your comic books at home, that starts on page number nine, where we get some standard uh, kind of panel structures. Then, you know, we see it, it really changes a lot as D is looking for it. And one of the things that, you know, I noticed here, and Sean, I thought maybe you could jump in, is that Dr. Destiny seems to evolve substantially over the course of, of this comic. 
Yeah, old Dr. Destiny. Um, you know, this was an issue that was very centered around him, right? Um, and even more so than 24 hours or passengers, really. So in approaching this issue, I kind of wanted to, like, go back and explore the history of Dr. Destiny and see kind of where these different visual portrayals of him came from and how his character might have developed and been changed um, over the decades, really. And so I kind of went back and I read through the majority of his early appearances um, in Justice League comic books from the early 60s uh, to the late 70s. Uh, and it was it was really interesting to see. It's a very different tone that a 1960s Justice League of America book has uh, than The Sandman in 1989. Um, so Dr. Destiny never given a name until Neil Gaiman gave him a name. So no way. So for the for the for the 20 years uh almost 30 years before he appeared in Sandman, he was just Dr. Destiny. I like it how Neil Gaiman's uh, like I will use my entire brain to give you the most amazing name. <laughs> John? <laughs> Wait. <laughs> D. Yes. Yeah. That is the name you are given now. <laughs> And yes, it, he was created by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. He first appeared in Justice League issue five from 1961. <laughs> it's so goofy. Okay. So at this point, he is not a, uh, he's not an established criminal. He decides to become a thief. But before committing any crimes, he figures I'll get the Justice League out of the way first and then i'll go <laughs> commit my, pro my crimes my yeah so he invents these weird like anti-gravity discs nothing to do with dreams or anything at this point he's just like standard like looks like a dude just like a guy who's like was on the bus with you or driving in the car behind you Wait, um i'm sorry pause he can create anti-gravity discs but instead decides to turn to a life of petty crime Yes, he invents anti-gravity discs, he invents shrinking rays, he invents <laughs> dream machines. Ashley, Ashley, he sneaks out of jail by tying a matchbox to a child's balloon and then shrinking down himself and his criminal friends. No. Climbing <laughs> in the matchbox and floating over the prison walls. This is not real. This can't be real. See, this is what you this run into. This is what you run into in late stage capitalism. Even the most intelligent people have to turn to a life of crime because they can't make any money and because they got to make the money. They got to get that money. Dude could have a yeah. Nobel Peace Prize and he's just like, mm, going to rob a bank. Nope, Nobel Peace Prize don't pay the bills, hun. <laughs> yeah, these are conditions of alienated labor. This is what this produces. This is what this produces. Join our Marxist um, revolution. <laughs> Yeah, so the anti-gravity thing uh, leads him to impersonate one of the members of the Justice League. He gets caught, 
he goes to jail, and then every subsequent issue appearance is him like plotting from jail. Like he's just in jail for the from 1961 to like 1989, <laughs> and it's always with some wacky crimes. My favorite issue that I read was issue 19 from 1963. This one was genuinely like very cool. Like still in a very Silver Age style, so if you're not used to reading comics from the American comics from superhero comics from the 1960s, like it might be a little jarring, but it's a really imaginative, fun issue. Um, Destiny in that issue invents the Materiopticon, um, which is a machine that he uses to induce the Justice League to dream. Uh, about themselves. Listen to this plot. Okay, let me see if this makes sense. So he builds a machine that makes the Justice League have dreams of themselves with enhanced superpowers. And then he uses the machine to make those dreams real. So now there's like Justice League doppelgangers out there that are evil. Um, and I believe he says something like, they're wicked because, of course, I am wicked or something like that. Uh, <laughs> Classic. So he's got the wicked Justice League. And the more evil they act, the more powerful they get. So there's all these cool scenes of them just, like, mopping the floor with the regular Justice League in really clever ways. Like, the two Green Lanterns have this, you know, because it's, for the Green Lantern, it's willpower that powers his mm-hmm. his magical ring, right? Um, so you have these two Green Lanterns who are both engaged in this battle of wills to see who controls the Green Lantern ring. And then you have a fake Superman that takes out the real Superman by casting a magic spell because Superman's other weakness besides kryptonite is his susceptibility to magic. Um, is that canonical? And Yeah, yeah, that is canonical. Ooh, That's cool. still utilized to this day. Oh, cool. Huh. Yeah. So beats up the Justice League. They get shot into space, right? <laughs> and where else? No, nowhere to go but up. Yeah, they escape and they get they sneak back to Earth with their using their secret identities. So this is also the first time they're all revealing their secret identities to each other. Oh um, no! Yeah, yeah. So then they get caught again and they get rocketed down to the center of the Earth. He figures, you know, that way didn't work. I'll try the other way. They escape that, and then they win because the Atom, Ray Palmer, the Atom, who can shrink shrink down really tiny, he basically, like, lobotomizes the fake Justice League and sends everyone to prison. So he, like, shrinks down, sneaks in their heads, gives them a little, like, just, I don't know, sort of just, like, plays bongos on their brains, and then that takes them out. <laughs> you know, there was a really great Calvin and Hobbes uh, comic. Uh, strip it was a few long where Calvin makes like a good version of himself instead of like the ordinary bad version of Calvin and the uh, the way that the good Calvin ends up because the good Calvin like does all the chores does all the homework like does all the things that way regular Calvin can just hang out with Hobbes and do whatever and how the good Calvin ends up being like defeated in the end is he has a bad thought and so that was like antithetical to his entire existence so he like pops out of existence when he has a bad thought <laughs> and i thought maybe that's how that was going to wrap up is that they convince them to like do something nice and that causes them to like have a brain aneurysm 
like they got to put out an issue every every month. Like <laughs> I'm sure if they had a little more time to think about it, they would have come up with that. But you know, those those pages aren't going to draw themselves. Um, <laughs> if you ever want to do a Calvin and Hobbes podcast, just let me know. I'm in for that. Um, no, noted. But noted. <laughs> so. Uh, throughout all these early appearances, like he's literally just a dude, just a, just a, just a kind of middle aged guy, like sort of a dad bod. It's actually not until issue one hundred and fifty four in nineteen seventy eight that he shows up in costume, skull faced, because uh, at some point, because he started working in dreams, like the prison psychiatrist takes away his ability to dream, and that causes his desiccated appearance. Mm. Uh, but this doesn't appear until 1978. So then he's got hood and cloak, like you see in the comic, where he during that period where he's sort of skull faced, he's got that cloak and hood. So that that's from that 1978 uh, appearance, and that is also the first appearance with the with the ruby and a new version of the Materiopticon. In that one, he gives the Justice League. Um, uh, a bunch of weird dreams again, <laughs> but then he brings those dreams to life again. But these are all things to do. Like he doesn't create justice league doubles. He just like messes with the justice league's powers in weird ways. And it's actually pretty like fun how far out they get. Like Batman uh, grows real wings. And so he's flying around like fighting crime with real wings. Amazing. Uh, I hate that. Yeah, no, it's pretty cool looking. And then the flash, uh, he can't stop slipping. <laughs> <laughs> And he eventually slides off the face of the earth and just goes off into space. And so he needs to slingshot around Jupiter to get back. (laughs) Superman gets like stuck in super ice and he has to fly into the sun to melt it. And then it ends with uh, Destiny making a bunch of giant copies of himself and just beating the Justice League to death. Of course... This was all uh, a dream that Destiny had because, again, the Atom and Black Canary get a hold of his Materiopticon and they give him this dream that he's won. 1980, he finally hatches a plan to drive the world mad with nightmares. So we're going from simple thief, regular looking dude, to skull faced guy whose goal is to drive the world mad with nightmares. And it's really. Uh, not that different of a characterization than we get mm-hmm. in uh, Neil Gaiman's comic nine years later. Gaiman added the element where all along it's been this ruby dreamstone that's powered his machines. And of course, he gave him that name. But if you followed these stories through the decades, it's it's a much more natural evolution than I expected it to be. I always assumed that Neil Gaiman was plucking this obscure Silver Age character out and just giving him an entirely new personality and history and background and all this. It's actually fairly consistent. I was surprised to see that. So I hope this little journey through the history of Dr. Destiny uh, has been a pleasant one for you all. And then I, I think one of the things that, or one of the people that were really important to this uh, to this issue would be Dringenberg, right, Sean? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, this is just such great work from Mike Dringenberg. I wanted to take this time to kind of dig in a little bit on on who he is as a guy, because he's not 
Yeah. Are you going to make another fan club? Because Sam, the Sam Keith fan club, I noticed you kind of, you know, are you leaving him behind? Well, you're over to Mike know, now. He, another Sean Sneak. You he, Sean he, sneaking out on Sam Keith? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Mad love uh, for Sam Keith. And Dringenberg thinks of Sam Keith and uh, Neil Gaiman as like his older brothers. He, he that know, makes you he, feel better at night. Okay. <laughs> and remember, remember, they got their start together. Dringenberg ended up at the Sandman because he worked with Sam Keith on radioactive adolescent hamsters. That's how they met. That's how Dringenberg <laughs> got brought in. Um, but, you know, one of the things that was surprising to me, because this is such a landmark work, it's pretty easy to find... Uh, people who are speaking about it, people who are reminiscing about it, um, you know, the creators on the on talking about the importance of the series. Not so with 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 Mikey D. Uh, I could actually only find one single interview with him in in the searching that I did, um, which is surprising because you know he worked in one capacity. Or, capacity or another, either as the penciler or the inker, on 13 of the first 16 issues of the series. Like, he's, you know, um, I saw one blog call him the closest thing to a regular artist Sandman had. And of course, he designed the look of five out of seven of The Endless. Um, And Mm. we'll talk more about his character design work, like, next issue, I would imagine, because it becomes very important. But here I just want to talk about a little the the significant change in the tone and style of his art, you know, compared to Sam Keith. Uh, Dringenberg's art's much more, you know, sort of subdued and much more realistic, um, while at the same time almost being more theatrical in a way mm. than Sam Keith's sort of bulbous cartoonish forms mm. and i don't mean that ben as a criticism of sam keith or to imply I wasn't that thinking that maybe subconsciously <laughs> you know what you're doing I, I don't know i feel like sean's a little bit like the taylor swift of the comic book world oh like, like new guy every week is that what you're referring to oh is that where we're going okay i don't know that much about taylor swift <laughs> oh, my apologies <laughs> I was like, because hey, if you all could could see me right now, I, I am not not someone who would be confused with Taylor Swift. Slight resemblance. I, I just mean that you know it's very different, and that affects what we take from the story. Um, you know, Dringenberg, like I said, thinks of them. You know, Sam Keith is an older brother. He said it was an uh, it was a pleasure inking Sam Keith uh, in this interview I saw. Um, and then he kind of paused and went back and he said, actually, it was awful, but a little bit of gossip for you. It was awful because of the way the editors treated Sam Keith. Mm. Right, um, you've mentioned he mentioned this before. Yeah, we've heard that before. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that was all from Sam Keith's perspective, right? right sure. Right. Like, like Neil Gaiman has said that, you know, Sam felt uncomfortable. He felt it wasn't right for him and he quit and that was sensible. Um, I, you know, I don't think, I think Karen Brewer has made, you know, similar comments. Uh, Keith has been more open about it, but this is the first time I've seen, like, someone, um, someone outside of that group of people directly involved, like, 
say that, yeah, it was pretty messed up mm. with hap- what happened. He says, especially with issue three, uh, so that was the 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 dream a little dream of me issue Mm. and i think you know you can you can see maybe some straining in sam keith's work there but he says that uh it was just awful the way he was treated and that some of the things that were said to mike during uh to sam keith mike considers like unforgivable interesting wow um uh but you know nevertheless um keith conveyed this sense of like dreamlike unreality through these fantastical forms and shapes, right? Think of the 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 hellscape, think of um, the house of secrets and mysteries, um, those characters, it, it was just like these these very fantastical renderings. But Drinkenberg relies on formal contrasts in a lot of ways. So he uses um, collage that kind of mixes with cartooning, uh, you know, and the, you've got the cartoons and then these sort of photorealist backgrounds. So that's one of the things I really of, liked watching, uh, reading this was was seeing that multi almost a multimedia approach to to the comic book panels. Yeah, which is interesting because that's the, the uh, that's the approach Sam Keith wanted to take originally, and they told him no. And then hmm. uh, Dringenberg was able to do it, like on the page. Uh, once D has entered the dreaming and he's got that sort of Julius Caesar look, mm-hmm. uh, and he's receiving, you know, uh, he's having his dreams interpreted by the soothsayers. You see, uh, a, a photo of Ethel Cripps in the background, right? Like a signed photo that, um, that D is sort of, you know, aghast kind of looking at above him. This would be page 10 for those of you that want to look at it. Yeah. And I'm also thinking of the image two pages later. So that would be page 12. That really amazing image. Yeah. Where, you know, he's floating in right from the from the the, the side there. And you've got that very realistic sort of grocery store background uh, and a, a family in there shopping with the dream masks. Right. I love that so much. It's not going to be a Sean sneak. I'm mentioning it now, so I don't have to mention it later. Um, but it's just such a beautiful page. And, and, and this is really, you know, I think it's important to pay attention to, to how each of these artists represent the dreaming and, and the state of unreality. Um, it's a very different way than every other artist who works on this series does it. And I think it works extremely well. Um, he mentions, Dringerberg mentions using all these different tools to, to create this. You know, he was a sort of formally trained artist. He credits his kind of academic background quite a bit in mm. his success here. But he says he was using things like collage scraps, graphic crayon, even Dr. Pepper he uses at one point. Totally cool. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. He didn't say where he used it, but I mean, that's pretty cool. That's all I'm going to be looking for now. <laughs> I know, right? Like, what of which of these, uh, which of these images might involve Dr. Pepper? <laughs> did you know that uh, Dr. Pepper used to be served hot? Yeah, I actually did know that, and I think it's horrifying. Yeah, it was like Ooh. a thing. Yeah. Have you there ever was tried also, it? There was also an old jingle. It was like Dr. Pepper, 10, 2, and 4. And it was like, you're supposed to drink a Dr. Pepper at 10, 2, and 4. 10, 2, This is why we all have 
diabetes. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe if we get enough Patreon subs, we can do a video where we drink hot Dr. Pepper. Yes. 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 It, it will not take me. It will not take a lot of subscribers. Like, <laughs> Wait, I'll what? do it after. No. Like, <laughs> we have one. We have one. Not right like that, Sean. Not like that. <laughs> um. If anyone just like mails me a Dr. Pepper, I'll drink your right now. <laughs> yeah. Do not drink any male Dr. Pepper, Sean. <laughs> You're too valuable. Too valuable. <laughs> so uh, one other thing that surprised me about kind of learning about Tringenberg's process was how slow he works. And that also may be a product of his formal training. He says, you know, he always wants to create that oh wow moment. So he would get rid of any pages that didn't have that factor. Like he would literally burn them. He would burn oh, the pages oh. Wow. that he was not happy with. Even, he says, if he'd already worked on it for three days. Now, for those of you who are, you know, not aware of how comic book artists work generally, like the, the sort of industry standard, especially at this time, was that artists on a monthly series should shoot to have one completed page per day. One page per day. And that's wow. tough as it is. So working on a page for three days and then starting over from scratch is absolutely insane. Um, and he says this is where Karen Berger would freak out at him because the book would already be a week late and he'd be like just burning pages in his garage or something. Yeah, I think as an editor, that would give me some palpitations yeah. as well. Yeah, I'd have some frustrations. Yeah, but overall, I mean, he seems like a really intense guy. Like, I would love to talk to him, but it's just he is definitely the guy that drew 24 hours and designed mm. death. Just mm. very intense. Uh, seems very nice, but very intense. Like, in this interview uh, at the Cartoon Museum this, uh, that was recorded and is uploaded to YouTube, he tells multiple stories throughout this interview of the friends of his that were assaulted or murdered during his time making Sandman. This is like a series of digressions that he makes during this interview, just to tell, like telling like murder stories and things like that. Um, he also talks about his disdain of, you know, superhero books um, for the most part. He did like Marshall Rogers Batman work. Marshall Rogers, artist who was really integral in the late 60s and early 70s of making Batman sort of that dark knight figure, like returning Batman to his mm. sort of shadowy, noirish roots. Um, so he did appreciate that. But he, he says he always had a distinct loathing for the meathead mentality of superhero books. He was, <laughs> he was inspired by the music he listened to is the music you would probably imagine he listened to. Um, a lot of stuff I hadn't heard of, but also like a lot of industrial records, uh, Throbbing Gristle, The Cure, uh, Bauhaus, a lot of <laughs> prog rock, stuff like that. He, he calls it a sort of audio, audio Dadaism. He says he told that tells tracks. one story. That's pretentious yeah, as hell, but it tracks. It's yeah. <laughs> this is really. This is this interview, yes. He, he tells a story of being inspired by a, a show in L.A. he went to where the band set up anvils on opposite sides of the stage. And then they would have a person hit an anvil with a mallet. 
and the sound would reverberate back and forth through the space. And then the guy on the other side of the stage is doing the same thing, but at a completely different tempo. So these sounds would be overlapping and then the reverberations would follow at like a totally different pace. And he says it caused the audience to become nauseous and folks were like running outside and vomiting. And this was one of Mike Tringenberg's <laughs> inspirations. Yeah, I can imagine him just like being like, wait, hold on. And just standing in between the chaos, like in between both anvils being like, yeah, I'm used. This is it. This is it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I just think it was really fun to learn a little bit more about him than I ever had before. I also learned why he gave the Sandman uh, the hair that he did. Because you'll notice Sam Keith's Sandman hair, very different than the big, sort of spiky, elaborate hair that we typically associate with Dream. Um, he, he wanted it to have... He thought the big hair, the big, like, Robert Smith-style hair, uh, looked shamanistic or, like... Um, Japanese lion dancers, you know, he wanted to have that sort of otherworldly effect. I thought he looked Mm -hmm. a little younger in this issue than previous issues we've covered. Mm. Well, that's one of the other things is that he's generally credited with uh, making sexy Morpheus. Like, that's... (laughs) Sam Keith Sandman looked a little, like, you know, he he fit in with that sort of, like, comic book Mm. monster look in a way, you know? Mm. but, But... Dringenberg's dream is like, you know, he's wearing like the t-shirt, he's all sort of live, and yeah, yeah. So yeah, super intense guy. Uh, Great to hear from him. I wish he'd do more interviews. Maybe we can get him on this one. Oh my god. We'll be right back. Do you fondly remember blowing the dust out of a golden Nintendo cartridge to get it to work? Get the dust out of it. All right, here we go. Yes, let's get it. Now the screen's gray. Aw, man. Or those long nights when you were up late fighting Ganon and you'd hear your mom coming downstairs. Hello? That's mom. Uh, pretend you're asleep. Wait, pause it. Pause it. Turn off the TV. Do you think she's gone? Make a sound. Hmm, I thought I heard two boys down here. Oh, well. Well, Ben and Pat are here to transport you back to those exhilarating moments as the Hyrule Podcasters. Join the two brothers each week as they play through Zelda games in Nintendo's legendary series. Episodes are filled with color commentary, lightly researched facts, personal anecdotes, and more. Hyrule Podcasters is available through Anchor on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Hyrule Podcasters on Facebook and Instagram at Hyrule Podcasters and on Twitter at Hyrule Podcasters. All right, so we come to everyone's favorite section, our favorite panel and favorite non-Sandman character. So we'll start with favorite panel as we always do. I think there's going to be some good competition here. Uh, I'm actually going to go first, and I am choosing pages 12 and 13, the big splash page that Sean tried to Sean sneak me on. Uh, And I don't know (laughs) if he successfully did it or not, but uh, I'm still going to talk about it. The main thing that drew me to this was the use of multimedia um, which Sean talked a whole lot about, so I won't go any, I won't go a whole lot more into it. But I just love that we start to get these uh, little hidden um, Sandman helmets everywhere, and uh, just the uh, there's something about multimedia. My mom does a lot of collaging, and uh, it just made me really happy, kind of seeing this and seeing the approach to it. So that's going to be my favorite panel, which is actually a page, but it takes up the entire uh, page, so it counts as one panel. 
that's all i'm justifying uh ashley what you got okay i was torn by two two but i think i just made my decision it's not particularly notable it's right after uh morpheus brings john back to arkham and they've been greeted by professor crane uh, uh i know the one yes so they're they're walking down the hallway they're in the darkness and you've got professor crane uh aka scarecrow on the left and you've got morpheus on the right and then you've got john in between them and he's saying there's no place like home professor crane and i was drawn to this panel specifically because because of its reference to the golden age of hollywood that we've kind of seen throughout um specifically with reference to the wizard of oz and so you've got you know, the scarecrow being the scarecrow. And then you've got Morpheus, who looks a little bit like the lion in this case. And Absolutely. then you've got John D being Dorothy, which I find hysterical. <laughs> uh, even just like the way he's dressed, it looks like, yeah, if in shadow, you could imagine him in a little Dorothy dress and, and pigtails. So I think it's just kind of endearing and cute considering the trauma of the last issue and a half that we've uh, encountered. The fact that we've got John D in a kind of innocent phase of just both exhaustion, defeat, uh, and sort of a contrite attitude in this point and the way Morpheus is treating him. I just kind of like this panel sort of in what if what it's referencing and also how it sort of frames John D as a pitiful character. Thanks, Ashley. Do, do you think... I think, like, first of all, do you know I specifically did not choose this panel because I thought you might take it? (laughs) Did you really? I I really did. (laughs) There we go. I meant to say something earlier, actually, so I could get that in beforehand. But That's a very very generous co-host move. (laughs) Kudos to Sean. But I I was like, I think this is an Ashley-style panel. (laughs) I do got to say, I think Dream would probably have to be the Tin Man, right? Because like oh, certainly. that's his whole thing is that yeah. he learns to, you know, well, let's not get too into it. Um, okay. See, yeah, there, that could be a whole conversation. <laughs> it's like we have a whole deep dive section in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> is Sean trying to so, sneak a deep dive into the wrap-up? <laughs> basic? I'm very confused here. It's got to, energy has to go break. somewhere. They sat through the ad break. They're like, ready to go. (laughs) All right, Sean, what's your panel? All right. So my panel is uh, on the page where just after John D has threatened, has promised that he's going to kill Dream and the page starts with Dream being like, kill me. It's uh, the bottom of that page. Sean just uh, held up his iPad to the uh, to the camera for, for for those here in the studio, which is just his co-host. Uh, this is page number six for those of you at home. Yeah, so it's the bottom of that page where Dream has put on his helm and he, you know, you see him standing there in the diner with his black coat of flames and the faces of the dreamers within it. And he's making some sort of elaborate gesture as he goes to open the portal into the dreaming. And I honestly don't even quite know why I 
love this one so much. It might just be like the theatricality of it. Like I was talking earlier, like there's something theatrical about Dringenberg's heart and that sort of elaborate pose as Dream goes to open this portal. You know, it's so otherworldly and it does it makes me think of like silent film right like it reminds mm-hmm. me of like a gesture from like Nosferatu or something yes yes I love that so so much and that was an image that's always sort of stuck mm. with me um, but I do find it funny that the panel following he's just straight up stepping on a dead guy's body <laughs> yeah he's just standing on his back that's I thought about choosing that one maybe to to communicate a sort of similar point uh but he's I, I can't get over that that mm-hmm. foot placement. I really can't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sean, we do it snake style as always. So you went last. So you go first. Who are you taking this week? Gosh, this is a tough one, right? Like, what am I going to choose the guy who held up like the severed dog's head? Like, no, there's not. <laughs> she almost did it. You almost got her. You were so close. So close. So I got to stop drinking water at these things. <laughs> I mean, there's not there's there, there's victims, and then there's the same and Jaunty. There's not a lot of options here, so I think I definitely have to go with the Bride of Frankenstein, Dream Geisha type creatures. I like it. I you like know, it. I just love that bit. It, I think it, and I think it does like capture something true of dream logic, right? Where in our minds, you know, uh, while we're sleeping. You kind of mix up these half-remembered phrases and images and rhymes and puns. So beware the Ides of March, Shakespeare reference, becomes beware the ideas of March, becomes beware the March of ideas and beware the bride of Frankenstein. Like there's just something truly dreamlike about that segment that I enjoyed a lot. All right, Ashley, who are you taking? All right. This is probably being too vulnerable. But I am picking Nan Fowler because I relate to her the most. She's the um, ambulance ambulance dispatcher that is like just taking call after call after call in the beginning of the issue. And then at the end of the issue, she's finally napping after what sounds like a horrific day at work. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I just, I so resonate with that specific posture (laughs) where she's just kind of clutching the mic and leaning oh, yeah. into her own hand uh yeah i uh i really feel for that for that woman oh, that is a very dis- despairing image right like that's oh, pretty good yeah well and I, I think it's just really um really compelling that we have started this issue with such horrific scenes like truly just awful depictions of crime and violence but then you do have her sort of trying to persevere through it all in the beginning. Like, so they show all these horrific things and they show her at the end of that whole section of her trying to persevere and listen and dispatch. And then at the end of the issue, when things are winding down and things are becoming peaceful again, she's found her peace and rest along with everybody else. And it was just like a, oh, okay, I can relax now. I don't even think I ever noticed that before. I like I didn't I didn't even pick up on uh, a named character being there and her reappearing. Good catch. Um, all right, so I am gonna go. So page fifteen. This is when D is starting to really decimate the dreaming. Uh, we get a glimpse of destiny, and he is in. Well, at least in my comic version he is uh it is a bluish panel he is there in the middle 
says, in the garden of forking ways, Destiny finds himself, perhaps for the first time, hesitant to turn the next page in his book. Um, I love the character of Destiny. Um, for those of you that are just reading along with us, uh, we will get more Destiny later on in this. Um, he is one of the endless uh, and will play a very uh, pivotal role throughout this overarching story. And I'm just excited that we get another one of the endless here, or an introduction to one. Yeah. Also, the only member of the Endless who uh, Neil Gaiman did not create, Destiny. Also, a uh, DC horror magazine host. Oh. Oh, really? Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, he's been around for a while. Um, and also, the Garden of Forky Ways. Have any of you either ever read uh, uh, Borges's The Garden of Forking Paths? No. I no. have to believe that. Gaiman is has been influenced to some extent by Jorge Luis Borges. Uh, I everyone should, should should read his work. He's also got a story about a library in which every possible book exists, like not just books that exist, but also every possible books. Uh, ben, I might get you uh, some Borges for Christmas. That'd be awesome. Thanks, Sean. All right. So in this week's episode, we took a look at repent. The end is near. What does the apocalypse mean? Uh, Ashley talked to us kind of all about the different variations on the classical approaches to the apocalypse, to the rapture, and how it has been interpreted, including the Schofield sevenfold scheme, uh, which was the note that I wrote down because I really liked it and wanted to bring it up again. Uh, we then <laughs> moved from one good book to another, and we talked about Macbeth. And Shakespeare in the sound and fury uh, and looking at how Macbeth is used as an allusion to what Dr. D, what Dr. Destiny and what has happened to him in this issue as he claws and scrapes his way in his ambition will be his downfall. Like the flickering of a candle. We then saw more illusions as Ashley pulled out this movie, Death Takes a Holiday, which to me just read as something silly that John was saying, but really had a lot more going on there and really pulled into the comic to just provide even more robustness to what we were reading. And then lastly, Sean wove us through how Dr. Destiny evolved from what could have been a very throwaway standard character during the Silver Age of DC Comics. And Neil Gaiman was able to pluck him out of somewhat obscurity uh, after a few year hiatus. Um, but really, the groundwork was almost fully laid for Neil to really just take him, give him a little bit of polish and a leveling up. And we got the character that we did. And then, of course, Sean wanted to talk about Mikey D and his panel approach as an artist uh, and the difficulties there and his work with Sam Keith and Neil Gaiman and kind of how the three of them produce what we're seeing here on the page. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sandman Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an Odd Conduit Media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. 
Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Head Trip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson and find Head Trip everywhere at LT Head Trip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Odd Conduit Media.